come on to this uh, next section of the reflections on mindfulness of the body, and this is about uh, activities. Once mindfulness of the four postures has led to a grounding of awareness in the body, one can turn to the next contemplation, introduced in the Satipatthana Sutta, a clear knowing, Sampajana, in regard to a range of bodily activities. The instructions for clear knowing are When going forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending his limbs, that's flexing, extending, uh, he acts clearly knowing. When wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, he acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent, he acts clearly knowing. So in this section, uh, even though the, the previous section just talked about sitting, standing, walking, lying down, and this section here uh, sp uh, speaks about bodily activities, uh, Venerable Analia focuses mostly on the quality of clearly knowing, Sampajana, rather than um, the, uh, the sort of the broader range of, of activities that we uh, might be uh, attentive to or, or bringing mindfulness to. So uh, bear that in mind, so that it's uh, when we th speak of mindfulness of activities, um, and uh, I was, as I was touching on a bit uh, yesterday, this is uh, something that as uh, a theme that's very strong within the um, uh, forest tradition and Ajahn Chah's uh, teaching in particular about bringing mindfulness to uh, all activities rather than thinking, you know, I'm practicing, meaning I'm doing sitting or walking meditation, but rather sustaining a continuity of, of mindfulness, whether you happen to be sitting, standing, walking, lying down, whether you happen to be cooking, doing the washing up, building a wall, demolishing a wall, uh, sewing, um, cleaning your teeth, or uh, whatever it might be that we do, driving on the M25, going on the train into, into London, um, typing on a, uh, on a uh, keyboard, whatever it might uh, be, that the the, uh, the range of, of activities um, and sustaining mindfulness through activities really uh, extends through that, that whole domain. Uh, but uh, Venerable Analio doesn't really cover that uh, at all in his commentary, uh, uh, as I'll get on to it, but mostly focuses just on the, uh, the element of uh, Sampajana, or uh, the uh, clearly knowing. Apart from being one of the body contemplations in the Satipatthana Sutta, this exercise also forms a distinct step in the gradual path of training, referred to as, quote, mindfulness and clear knowledge, Sati Sampajanya. In the sequence of this gradual path of training, mindfulness and clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities occupy a transitional place between a preparatory development and an actual sitting meditation. To be more precise, mindfulness and clear knowledge complete the preliminary stages concerned with ethical conduct, restraint and contentment, and form the starting point for the formal practice of meditation. 
when one resorts to a secluded place in order to overcome the hindrances, to progress through the levels of absorption and to gain realization. Thus, the development of mindfulness and clear knowledge is a foundation for more formal meditations such as, in the present context, the remaining contemplations described in the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, this is uh, following along with his theme of um, rather than having the uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing considered as the first element, starting off with the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, and then um, in this next section of uh, activities, focusing on the fact that um, it's not just a, um, uh, uh, in, as in the being aware of the, um, uh, the four postures, so, um, simply the, the being attentive to the four postures. This, uh, what he's saying is that the instruction in relationship to this one has this sampajana, has c- uh, clear awareness or full awareness as well. So he's saying it's not just, um, yeah, say, the, the, um, the simple bringing of attention to the four postures, but there's a, an added uh, f- uh, sampajana, an added f- uh, full awareness, clearly knowing uh, element to it, and saying that is preparatory to then uh, engaging in one of the more formal exercises that you do in the usually in the sitting meditation posture, considering the, the parts of the body, the, uh, the body as being made up of elements and, and so on and so forth. And so that's the theme that he's uh, sort of pursuing or he's developing in this particular chunk here so that it's um, saying <coughs> not just paying attention to the body and its postures but paying attention with, with full awareness and that's sort of leading to, okay, now it's time to sit down and follow the breath which would be in, in his rejigging of the four of the sequence of Satipatthanas in this section having the uh, four postures, then activities, and then mindfulness of breathing, and then the other body contemplations. So is that clear enough? Good. The combined expression, mindfulness and clear knowledge, indicates that, in addition to being mindful of the activities mentioned, the presence of clear knowledge, sampajana, plays uh, an important role. Since clearly knowing on its own, and also in combination with sati, occurs in the discourses in a variety of contexts and can assume a broad range of meanings, the question arises of the implications of clear knowledge, quote-unquote, in regard to the various activities mentioned. Neither the Satipatthana Sutta nor the expositions of the gradual path offer further information. The commentaries make up for this by presenting a detailed analysis of clear knowledge, uh, sampajanya, into four aspects. According to them, clear knowledge should be directed to the purpose of an activity and also to its suitability. So purpose, first of all. Second, suitability. Uh, Purpose is sataka sampajanya. Suitability is sapaya sampajanya. Uh, Moreover, one should clearly understand how to relate to this activity to one's meditation practice, one's pasture, that's it, uh, that's, the word is gochara, which also means resort or the place where you, you hang out, the place where you, so place where you go to. So that's pasture with an A, not posture with a, an O. Pasture, like a, 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 a place where you spend your time. And lastly, one should also develop non-delusion. That's as, asanmoha sampajanya. 
non-delusion by clearly understanding the true nature of reality. So, purpose, suitability, pasture or, or resort, domain, and then lastly, non-delusion. A closer inspection of the discourses brings to light several passages that support or further clarify this commentarial presentation. According to the Maha Sunyata Sutta, the greater discourse on emptiness, talking can be carried out clearly knowing by refraining from topics unsuitable for one who's gone forth. Here, clearly knowing, quote-unquote, implies that one discusses topics related to contentment, seclusion, concentration, wisdom, etc., since in this way speech becomes purposeful in regard to one's progress on the path. This instance parallels the first aspect of clear knowledge mentioned in the commentaries, which is concerned with the purpose of an activity. So this is uh, teasing out satisampajanya, or mindfulness, and clear awareness, or mindfulness, and clear comprehension. So another way of speaking about that is uh, not just having a, a, sort of a, um, a simple or basic mindfulness of, of an activity or an experience, but also the context within which that is happening. So that I can, uh, can see, I look at the clock, it's not quite ten past six, we're just getting underway with the, the, uh, the evening reading, and there's plenty of time to play with, and <clears throat> and so we're just on this last section of the uh, um, mindfulness of the body uh, uh, as it relates to activities. So that would be the uh, sense of the, the time, the place, the situation, what's been said already, what I've read already, and what uh, 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 so is uh, in the process of being explained. So that the sampajanya is that sense of uh, full uh, full attention uh, of people seeming like they understand are they not seeming like they understand is there something else to say is there something to say differently so sampajanya uh, then is divided up in the commentaries by the into these four different pieces purpose so uh, what um, what are you do why are you doing what you're doing <laughs> uh, suitability so like what's the intention you know, why why are we talking why am i why am i reading from this book and talking to you uh, suitability um, so, and the word sapaya there is the same as the, the, the Thai word sabai, meaning comfortable or pleasant or, or easy, sabai mai. Yeah, it's like, uh, are you comfortable? Are you, uh, are you happy? Are you content? So sapaya, suitability. Uh, is it fitting? So that is the intention, what are we doing this for? Uh, suitability, um, is, it, is it working or is it, uh, is it sort of heading in a good direction? Pasture. What are the, what are the boundaries that you want to keep within, or what's um, what's the broader context? So, like, um, uh, say for the um, the example he gives here about a speech that is um, uh, say bringing mindfulness to speech, clearly knowing sampajanya in relation to, to relationship to speech for someone who's gone forth as a monastic. So, for example, a monastic doesn't go into the kitchen and say, "Oh, that smells good. Can I have a taste?" Like that is not something that monastics do, or um, or a layperson says, "Oh, you know, did you? Uh, uh, what's your favourite food, Ajahn?" And uh, so, a, an appropriate monastic response would be, "My favourite food is the food that's in my bowl. I'm not interested in the food in Ajahn Ahinsko's bowl." <laughs> so, what, what, what's your favourite thing? What do you like to eat most? And then you say, "I don't answer that question. Uh, I I like to." The food that I'm, I'm offered, I appreciate the kindness with which it's given, and the, the, the taste and uh, such like is, is uh, completely secondary. So, um, 
there is a whole range of things that monastics are, are not in, in, uh, encouraged to talk about worldly judgments, you know, food, clothing, um, <coughs> uh, opinions about po- uh, politics, <laughs> not taking sides with, in terms of politics, uh, sports teams, nationalism, um, you know, the, you, you name it, um, uh, sexual characteristics, whether someone you judge someone to be attractive or unattractive, uh, judgments according to uh, approving of someone of their social status, whether someone is, um, say, a high-ranking person or low-ranking person, whether they are, uh, and all of those things are completely sort of forbidden to, to speak about. You don't use a kind of language that praises one or, or is pejorative to another. That's not the kind of speech that a, a summoner engages in. And the speech should be directed, as he says, towards contentment, seclusion, concentration, wisdom. So that uh, whatever the conversation starts up on, or, or <coughs> you know, you might, someone might say, well, Ajahn, who do you think is going to win the game tonight? <laughs> well, I don't actually think about it. Which game are you talking about? And it's unlikely that I've been thinking about it. <laughs> no, no, but who do you think is going to win? You know? Well, uh, I, um, it's not something that you can easily say. It's not something that I'm interested in. And um, I'll have Mudita for the winners and, and Karuna for the, for the losers. And if it's a tie, then we'll have <coughs> yeah, Meta for all of them. So that uh, you're consciously steering conversation and engagement towards things that are going to conduce towards to peacefulness, clarity, liberation, rather than yeah, but come on, I mean, Arsenal, really? I mean, they, I mean, aren't they the best? Well, you're entitled to an opinion. That makes you happy. Ritualized combat is, uh, is part of our society, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> the Six Nations rugby, the uh, um, Premier League football, um, uh, American politics, uh, the House of, Houses of Parliament. Uh, what do you think about Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I don't think about Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> you know, you can respond in these ways, whether you happen to be a monastic or a layperson. But what's your opinion? So you can say, well, I don't have an opinion. It's completely legal to say, I don't have an opinion. Or, or say, opinions change. But, yeah, but what do you think about that? Well, quite honestly, until you asked the question, I hadn't thought about Jeremy Corbyn. It's just a doesn't cross my mind from one end of the day to the next. <laughs> so that um, these, uh, uh, the, as he said, this this way of dividing up and looking at um, Satisampajanya is, um, say, uh, divided up into these four sections. So the pasture then is like the domain or the boundaries that you want to keep within. Um, <coughs> and um, so if it's a pasture, if I suddenly got into, uh, if I sort of wandered off track and said, well, actually, you know, I say all that about not having an opinion, but really, you know, Chelsea are having a terrible season, but, you know, they, they are, I think they can still win the league, you know. But if you think, well, Ajahn Amro has gone off. You, you would know, I've, I've left the appropriate gochara because I'm taking a, a stance or, or making some kind of comment about forms of societal ritual combat that people uh, engage in to keep them keep uh, us masses entertained what about what about bake off ajahn yeah what's your what's your opinion about the great british bake off I, hmm? <laughs> I keep i keep my finger on the pulse 
<laughs> and the uh, the winner from last year was a Luton girl, so that's local. So. <laughs> hmm? Luton's proud of her. Yeah, so. <laughs> like Hamill, ha- you know, Luton doesn't have a lot to be proud of. So. Now, it's my job in the, to keep informed as to what's on the minds of... of it is staggering the amount of the time and attention that, that goes into these forms of ritual combat, like the Great British Bake Off, or Strictly Come Dancing, which I've never seen. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen the Great British Bake Off either, but just... The, the amount of people uh, that watch these programs and the amount of attention uh, that's given to it, you know, sort of, uh, that, uh, the, and the sort of level of discussion that, um, <coughs> that goes on, that somebody can be amazed that, you know, the, say the Prime Minister hasn't been watching the Great British Bake Off. Well, I'm sure he was because his wife is in the, <laughs> is in the, uh, in the current round. But uh, it's, uh, these things have an amazing potency in the, in the minds of society, and so that they uh, they affect people's lives. Maybe not the lives of the average person who comes to stay at Amravati, but uh, uh, in the world at large. So <coughs> it's helpful to know the gochara, the the boundaries of what it's good to talk about and useful to talk about, and how to uh, uh, say be aware of what the appropriate limits are that are going to be um, beneficial for yourselves and others. And then the last one, uh, non-delusion, asamoha sampajanya, to be keeping your activity or to be mindful of where your your activity or your engagement or the way you're judging your perception is drifting towards moha, towards delusion. And to be, um, say, Uh, using that, that aspect of sampajanya, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and, and clear awareness, to be uh, counteracting delusion. Or if you do have an, you do notice an opinion arises, and say, oh, did I miss Great British Bake Off? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you can recognize, well, that's a deluded thought. I don't really need to know about that. And I didn't know there was a big game on tonight. But, but uh, I don't need to know that. I can put it aside. That was just a, a wave of feeling. And so that's nothing that needs to be picked up. So that would be the amoha, asamoha, sampajanya, like moving towards uh, awakening, moving towards understanding, rather than buying into favored delusions and uh, judgments and perceptions. Several of the activities listed in this part of the Satipatthana Sutta, such as going forward and returning, looking ahead and looking away, flexing and extending one's limbs, and wearing one's robes, carrying one's outer robe and bowl, occur as a set elsewhere in the discourses. These instances do not explicitly mention clear knowledge, but are instructions given to monks regarding proper behavior. What the discourse is emphasized in regard to these activities is that they should be performed in a graceful and pleasant way. The party for that is Pasadika. Similarly, the Chinese Majima Agama speaks of a monk's quote, dignified and quiet behavior when practicing clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities. Judging from these passages, this particular set of activities stands for a careful and dignified way of behaving appropriate to one who is living as a monk or as a nun.
go. In the Chinese, it's also uh, they refer to it as the awesome manner. That's uh, awesome, as in dignified, not as in wow, awesome. Like it's a, not the kind of current usage of awesome, but more that which inspires uh, awe and inspiration and serenity. The need to maintain such standards as good conduct has found its expression in the numerous training rules for the monastic community. These regulate in great detail various aspects of daily conduct. The importance accorded to the externals of conduct in ancient India is also evident in the Brahmayu Sutta, where a close examination of the Buddha's daily conduct formed part of an attempt to assess his spiritual accomplishment. This need for a monk or nun to behave in a careful and dignified manner parallels the second aspect of clear knowledge mentioned in the commentaries, which relates it to the suitability of an action. So the first one, you'll remember, was purpose. So what's the, the, the reason behind and the intention behind an action? Um, and so then the second one is um, suitability. And it's true, we do have uh, uh, thousands and thousands of, of rules of etiquette that we are expected to uh, to follow. Um, this codified in the in our books of our Vinaya and uh, the uh, uh, the detail to which they uh, they spell things out is quite quite remarkable. But I thought, uh, as he quotes or mentions that Brahmayu Sutta, I thought I would read that out. So it it starts off with a um, a very elderly Brahmin who was apparently 120 years old. And Brahma Yu literally means the old Brahmin. Ayu means age, and, Bra and Brahma is a Brahmin. So Brahma Yu uh, was uh, 120 years old, and he'd heard of the Buddha's reputation. He wanted to find out, well, well this, this um, Samana Gautama, is he really enlightened? Is he really this extraordinary being as that they say that he is? And so he asked one of his, his uh, students um, called Uttara, a young Brahmin student, to go and visit the Buddha and spend time with him and to see whether he possessed all the, the marks of a, of a great being, a Mahapurisa, and also to look into his conduct and to, to, to live with him and see what, uh, what his impression was. And so, uh, as it says... Well, I'll leave that. I'll leave that. I was not going to bother going into the thirty-two marks because the whole uh, collection of it—it's a—it's a whole different sort of mythology around it. So I was going to just skip over that for the sake of brevity. There's all kinds of weirdnesses in the thirty-two marks. So. Anyway, uh, the um, uh, the result then of um, uh, Uttara, going to stay with the Buddha, and then um, at the end of seven months, he went back to report to uh, Brahmayu, his teacher. And uh, as it says here in the Sutta, then he followed him for seven months like a shadow, never leaving him. At the end of seven months, in uh, the country of the Videhans, he set out to return to Mithila. He went to Brahmayu, the Brahmin, paid homage and sat down to one side. And Brahmin, um, Brahmayu said, well, dear Uttara, uh, is the report of the monk Gotama that has been spread about true or not? And is Master Gotama one such as that or not? So then he goes through the, the 32 marks of the great being, which are uh, a, a whole mythology on their own, so I'll leave all that aside for the time being. 
Um, but uh, the more everyday activities and characteristics I thought would be interesting to go through. When he walks, he steps out with the right foot first. He does not extend his foot too far, nor put it down too near. He walks neither too quickly nor too slowly. He walks without his knees knocking together. He walks without his ankles knocking together. He walks without raising or lowering his thighs or bringing them together or keeping them apart. When he walks, only the lower part of his body oscillates, and he walks with no bodily effort. When he turns to look, he does so with the whole body. It's called the elephant look. It's demonstrating like the queen. The queen never turns her neck like that. The queen turns from the waist. <laughs> yes? So um, the Buddha was the same. It's called the elephant look. Because elephants, they can't turn their neck like that. They turn the whole body to look, back, to look around. He does not look vertically down. He does not look vertically up. He does not walk looking about. He looks only a plough yoke's length before him. It's about two, two or three meters in front of him. Beyond that, he has the vision of unhindered knowledge. When he goes indoors, he does not raise or lower his body or bend it forward or back. He turns round neither too far from the seat nor too near it. He does not lean on the seat with his hand. He does not throw his body down on the seat, like sort of plumping himself down on a chair. When seated indoors, he does not fidget with his hands. He does not fidget with his feet. He does not sit with his knees crossed. He does not sit with his ankles crossed. He does not sit with his hand holding his chin. When seated indoors, he is not afraid. He doesn't shiver or tremble. He is not nervous. His hair does not stand up on that account, and he is intent on seclusion. When he receive, uh, in, and when he says intent on seclusion, there's another sutta, um, I haven't got the reference right here, but uh, it says whenever the Buddha receives visitors or is uh, talking to people, um, then he always has it in his mind to bring the conversation to an end. <laughs> he's not looking for more contact. But he's, the, the Buddha, I forget the exact phraseology of it, but it's, it's, it's one of those, it's like a single reference in one sutta, but you can, uh, it's quite significant that Whenever the Buddha is receiving, if they have people have questions and they want to engage, he's happy to talk and to teach and instruct. But he's uh, he's never looking to extend the contact for um, for any reason. And so he is okay. It's time to finish. Cheerio. <laughs> well, the uh, Pali equivalent thereof. So that uh, intention on seclusion that his mind inclines towards. Um, Solitude, and he's not looking for more engagement uh, unnecessarily. You know, just hunting around for someone to spend some time with, or sort of carrying on the conversation just for the sake of. When he receives water for washing the arms bowl, he does not raise or lower the bowl, or tip it forwards or backwards. He receives neither too little nor too much water for the bowl. He washes the bowl, so the Buddha washed his own arms bowl. He washed the bowl without splashing. He washes his arms bowl without turning it about. He does not put the bowl on the floor to wash his hands. When his, but when his hands are washed, the bowl is washed. When the bowl is washed, his hands are washed. He pours the water for the bowl washing away, neither too far nor too near, and he does not throw it about. 
When he receives rice, he does not raise or lower the bowl or tip it forwards or backwards. He, not, he receives neither too little nor too much rice. He adds sauces, curries in the right proportion. He does not exceed the right amount of sauce in the mouthful. He turns each mouthful over three or four times in his mouth and then swallows it. And no gr rice grain enters his mouth unmasticated, nor does any remain in his mouth. So every mouthful, just uh, everything is chewed, and then he swallows it, and after he swallowed, there's nothing left in his mouth. He takes his food experiencing the taste without experiencing greed for the taste. The food he takes has five factors. It is neither for amusement, nor for intoxication, nor for smartening, nor for embellishing, but only for the endurance and continuance of this body, for the ending of discomfort, and for assisting the holy life. Thinking, thus I shall terminate old feelings, uh, feelings of discomfort and hunger, without arising new feelings of fullness or bloatedness. And I shall live in comfort, healthy and blameless. When he has eaten and receives water for washing the bowl, he does not raise or lower the bowl or tip it forwards or backwards. He receives neither too little nor too much. He washes the bowl without making a splashing noise. When he has eaten, he sits in silence for a while, but he does not let the time for the blessing go by. When he gives the blessing after eating, he does not do so, criticizing the meal or expecting another meal. He instructs, urges, rouses, and encourages that audience with talk purely on Dhamma. When he's finished that, he rises from his seat and departs. Also, it's another thing that we never make comment about whether you thought the food was delicious or, or not delicious, or, or how people could improve their cooking. <laughs> but uh, one does not make uh, comments of that kind. He walks neither too fast nor too slow, and he doesn't go as one does and wants to get away. That can be difficult if your uh, the mind is inclining to departure that when you see some new people just arriving. <laughs> this is a, I, I, uh, I practice with this one a lot because I every day at the at the meal time then I just stay here until the last people who come to visit have um, have departed, and I can see in myself oh they've all everyone's gone now now it's time now it's time to go and then then I hear the sound of the door opening. <laughs> so it's a, an interesting feeling to watch like I oh, know I'm not in a hurry I'll just uh, stay and be here for whoever arrives and when the last people are gone then I go but it's a, a, you know, an understandable feeling of trying to following the inclination to de, to depart the solitude uh, the Buddha didn't turn that into an urge to get away his robe is worn neither too high nor too low on his body nor too tight against his body nor too loose nor does the wind blow his robe away from his body. Dust and dirt do not soil his body. When he's gone to the forest, he sits down on a seat made ready. Having sat down, he washes his feet. He does not concern himself with pedicure. <laughs> no need to spend too much time picking your toenails. After washing his feet, he sit, um, seats himself cross-legged, sets his body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of him. He does not occupy his mind with self-affliction or the affliction of others, or the affliction of both. He sits with his mind set on his own welfare, on others' welfare, and on the welfare of both. In fact, on the welfare of the whole world. When he goes to the monastery, he teaches the Dhamma to an audience. Uh, he neither flatters nor berates that audience. Uh, so he don't, doesn't praise the people that are there, or flatter them, or criticize them, and, and sort of uh, attack them. 
does not flatter nor berate the audience. He instructs, urges, rouses and encourages that audience with talk purely on the Dhamma. The speech issuing from his mouth has eight qualities. It is distinct, intelligible, melodious, audible, ringing, incisive, deep and sonorous. But while his voice is intelligible as far as the confines of the audience, his speech does not extend beyond that audience. So that in a group of people, the Buddha would speak loud enough and would be able to project so that the people as, uh, uh, at the, the back of the group could still hear clearly, but not so loud that he's shouting or sort of would be beyond the limit of the, the, um, the group. So again, knowing the, the boundary and the appropriate loudness or the capacity for, needed for projecting the voice effectively. When people have been instructed, urged, roused and encouraged by him, they rise from their seats and depart, looking only to him and concerned with nothing else. Venerable Sir, we have seen Master Gotama walking, we have seen him standing, we've seen him indoors and seated in silence, we've seen him indoors eating, we've seen him indoors sitting in silence after eating, we've seen him giving the blessing after eating, we've seen him going to the monastery, we've seen him sitting in the monastery in silence, we've seen him sitting in the monastery teaching the Dhamma to an audience. Such is Master Gotama, such is he and more than that. When this was said, the Brahman Brahmayu rose from his seat, arranging his robe on, his one, on one shoulder, raised his hands, palms together, towards where the Blessed One was, which was yeah, many, many miles away. <clears throat> and he uttered this exclamation three times, Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Honor to the Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened. Now, so, uh, and <clears throat> uh, that, uh, and so then after that he said, Now, suppose sometime or other, we were able to meet Master Gotama. Suppose we had some conversation together. So if you want to read that sutta in full, that's uh, sutta number 91 from the Majjhima Nikaya, and it's called the Brahmayu Sutta. So that's uh, one of the, the most um, comprehensive or complete sort of descriptions you have of, of the Buddha, uh, how he operated as a person. So you don't have a lot of that detail. You have in the Vinaya scriptures a, um, a lot of, uh, of teaching from the Buddha about how the monks and nuns are supposed to behave but uh, not a lot about how he does things. And so that's uh, almost a unique account of someone particularly going to watch the Buddha and seeing how he, how he operates, how he does things, and then um, uh, giving a kind of snapshot of uh, the way of the, the Buddha's functioning and how everything is sort of done in a, in a way that's sort of not, uh, <coughs> not uh, complicated or not sort of, uh, antisocial or that sort of fits in with the basic societal norms, which is sort of gracious and appropriate to time and place, and, and um, is a, 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 a way of being and operating and speaking that is uh, sort of fits with the needs of someone who is being supported by the generosity and kindness of others, but is uh, is not uh, is not asking for anything, but is happy to uh, live on whatever is offered, and is not trying to to, to um, uh, get anything or convert people, but is happy to to teach if uh, people are interested, and then if they're and not as, uh, not trying to uh, say uh, intrude upon people, but being ready to serve when uh, when there is interest, and then also knowing the right time to to to, to finish when there's a sense, of, okay, that's enough, right the amount of, the right amount of food, the right amount of, of speech, the right amount of time for for an assembly, and so that. Uh, is a very beautiful description uh, of, in a sense, mindfulness of activities 
that <coughs> that um, and so obviously and it's not just a matter of reading the words and trying to replicate okay so I should never look up anymore right? <laughs> or I should never look down at the ground it's not a matter of just replicating things uh, in a literal way but uh, getting the, that spirit of knowing the right amount knowing the time knowing the place knowing the situation knowing who you're with you can practice the elephant look if you like <laughs> But then that probably get you get you some strange uh, comments and the <laughs> people with other people at the office. Oh, you got you got a problem with your neck, have you? But uh, it's a um, it's expressing a kind of graciousness and balance in a way of of uh, functioning in the world. So before I carry on, any questions or comments? I'll just read the, the last um, section here. A passage from the Anguttara Nikaya associates clearly knowing, Satisampajanya, with the activity of looking. This passage reports the monk Nanda, who was particularly, a particularly lustful character, marshalling all his effort in order to avoid the arising of desires and discontent, abhija domanasa, when looking in any direction. The terminology used in this instance shows that this form of clearly knowing is related to sense restraint. A similar nuance can be found in the Mahasunyata Sutta, which relates clearly knowing to, uh, in regard to the four postures, sorry, which, re, which relates clearly knowing in regard to the four postures to sense restraint. Both passages correspond to the third aspect of clear knowledge mentioned in the commentaries, which speaks of pasture, the same expression came up earlier in Sati, uh, in relation to Sati imagery, depicting Satipatthana as the proper pasture, gochara, of a monk, while improper pasture represented sensual distraction. This suggests that clear knowledge in regard to pasture, or the kind of resort, or, or the boundaries for our conduct, uh, refers in particular to sense restraint. And so uh, it's also, um, sangvara is another word for, for restraint. Uh, indriya sangvara, restraining the senses. So that's um, so boundaries, not just in terms of, of where you physically go or what you talk about, but also what you put your attention on. What what do you what do you look at? What do you spend your time listening to? Um, what do you um, you what do you look at in the in the newspaper or on the in the the news reports or in uh, in in terms of information? What do you you do you choose to Entertain yourself with, or to to um, say, fill your mind with, and and so that the um, uh, that gochara or the resort or the domain is uh, is all a part of that. And then sense restraint, uh, as I was um, uh, uh, talking about in relationship to the Buddha's comments to Magandhya, uh, it's also sometimes it can come across that the the Buddha was against the the sense world or an, uh, anti. Um, the, the um, feelings of sense pleasure and such like, but rather it's uh, it's the spirit is out of simplicity, like not putting uh, the mind uh, onto things that are going to create more confusion, more fear, more irritation. Like if you uh, <coughs> fill your mind with with say alarmist news reports, um, then you'll find yourself feeling very anxious and, and or, or upset. That um, the sometimes the, the press puts things in ways that are very 
deliberately emotive that are sort of stirring you up to be angry or to be excited or to be afraid or irritated and insecure. That's how they sell newspapers. As Ajahn Sumedho would often say, they'd never put a headline on the Daily Mirror saying, Buddhist monk has mindful inhalation. That will never be a banner headline. It's like, no, it's sex and violence. Yeah, Buddhist monk runs off with sixteen-year-old. That would make the the the, uh, the headlines. But the yeah, Buddhist monk is, he ha- has a mindful inhalation. So is that? Why is that news? <clears throat> so that uh, that sense of um, uh, restraint with re- with regards to what we hear, what we see, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch is is not about. Um, it's not a kind of nihilism or, or, um, or, or, say, trying to nullify the sense world, but to relate skillfully to it so that then um, we are able to, um, say, uh, use our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind and relate to the world in a, in a manner that is conducive towards being able to respond to life rather than reacting right, because of the sort of emotional charge of things. There's also... Um, uh, I, and I've looked for this, for the for the reference for this for years, but I think it must have been one of those commentarial teachings that, that Ajahn Chah grew up with, because one of the because uh, it, it doesn't seem to be in the Pali Canon. But there's a story that uh, uh, I heard um, through him, which was that uh, on one occasion uh, an, uh, the Buddha is invited to receive a, a meal at the pa- at the palace, either King Pasenadi or King Bimbisara had invited the Buddha for a, 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 a meal, and it was just very um, substantial, uh, elaborate banquet of food that's, that's uh, offered to the Buddha and the Sangha. And that, uh, <clears throat> and then uh, during the, the meal, Ananda um, makes a comment, uh, oh, even though this food is so sumptuous, so, um, so uh, sort of extraordinarily, um, say, uh, elaborate and, and, and refined and delicious, you know, that... Uh, the the Tathagata is of completely um, uh, uh, equanimous. The Buddha, he said, you know, the Buddha is is a totally equanimous and is a completely um, uh, uh, sort of unmoved by any of these flavors. And, uh, and with the implication that it's almost like the Buddha couldn't really ta- didn't really taste anything; it all just tastes the same. And, and the the way that Ananda phrases it, it's like you know, as if these uh, all this food just had a, you know, a single uh, a single flavor and um, and then the Buddha says, not so, Ananda. One of the 32 marks was uh, an acute sense of taste. I guess Ananda had forgotten it at that point. And then he took, uh, <coughs> according to the story, then the Buddha took some food out of his own bowl and said, here, Ananda, you know, eat this, and, and you will taste things as the Tathagata, as the Buddha tastes, uh, tastes things. And so then Ananda takes this, this piece of food and then uh, puts it in his mouth, and there's this explosion of kind of hyper, uh, uh, hyper flavor, Extraordinarily and sort of powerful and delicious and exotic, beyond anything he'd ever tasted, and and then another. You know, this is this is the the uh, the sense of taste that the Tathagata, you know, the Buddha uh, experiences. You know, whenever he eats, he has this uh, this experience of, uh, of acute uh, taste. However, uh, even though this uh, sense of, of taste and uh, the extraordinary uh, refinement uh, uh, and uh, powerful sense of flavor that is there, his mind is completely. Yeah, un, unruffled and unconfused, uh, and uh, is not moved towards greed on account of, of having this um, supremely powerful and acute sense of, of taste.
it's one of those things also with uh, with regards to uh, restraint and knowing the right amount you know, when we're when we're eating sometimes people develop all sorts of practices around food like only eating um, 32 mouthfuls or chewing each mouthful a hundred times or uh, or, uh, or sort of limiting um, things in various ways but uh, uh, Ajahn Chah would not encourage any of that kind of um, Sort of specific or special practices around food himself, but he would just say, just pay attention to the to the food you're, you're eating and just eat one mouthful at a time. And rather, like I was saying yesterday, like walking one step at a time, we might think that we do, but often <laughs> we're driving towards the next um, destination. And that's even more acute with food, which is a very primal activity, eating, uh, as we all know, so definitely in the domain of the, the reptile brain. Uh, drives our eating habits, and you might have noticed how, when food is particularly delicious, it leaves it, it, uh, it leaves the plate quicker. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> when something is when when you're particularly excited or interested in food, you're particularly hungry or something's especially delicious, then the you know you get uh, the mind gets so excited about it that your your um, uh, before you realize it, you're staring at an empty bowl or empty plate and, and you're left with the thought, well, where did that go? And then you think, I better have some more because I missed the first lot. So, <laughs> it was so good, it was so delicious, it was so so fantastic, it was so perfect, I missed the whole thing. <laughs> right? And, then, and there's a few people nodding and we've all been there. And so uh, the, um, uh, <clears throat> the, the trick... Uh, of uh, learning to eat one mouthful at a time. It's a very simple practice. Uh, if you have a spoon or a fork, whatever you're eating with, here we usually eat with spoons. When you put a mouthful of uh, a, a spoonful of food in your mouth, put the put the spoon down and chew the the mouthful of food that you got in your mouth, and don't pick the spoon up until that mouthful of food has gone. Either like in the Brahma Sutta, just you know. The, the, the Buddha chews the food and then swallows it and finishes swallowing it before he takes the next mouthful. We can do that. And uh, it is remarkable what that does to the flavor of the food when you're actually paying attention to the, the, the food that's in your mouth rather than getting excited about the next mouthful, the next spoon that you're, you're making up. And <clears throat> some of you might be thinking, well, I shan't, I'm, I'm not so heedless or careless about food. I'm, I'm totally beyond all of that. Sadhu, well done. I'm very glad to hear. If that's the case, I'm very glad to hear it. And please excuse me for making presumptions about your eating habits, but I suspect that you're all very like me in that in that fashion, and that the as you're chewing, you're making up the next mouthful. You're kind of hunting for what's going to go next, what's going to work well. You're not paying attention to what's here because your your attention's going there. The simple simple ta- uh, act of putting the the spoon or the fork down. Yeah, putting your utensils down, <clears throat> then uh, even if the people that you're sitting with at the table or where might think that you're being weird, don't worry about it. Let the world think what it likes. <laughs> Just put the utensil down. You don't have to eat in slow motion. You don't have to chew 32 times or anything. But just just eat normally. Uh, put, the, put the spoon down. Eat the mouthful you have. When you finish that, pick the spoon up, take another mouthful. And uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, not uh, maybe not quite on the level of what Ananda had, 
But it is extraordinary what uh, happens when we pay attention to the, the food that's actually on our tongue, in, in our mouth, because uh, mostly we're not there for it. We're so busy with the next next mouthful. So I, I thoroughly encourage that as a as a practice. The fourth aspect mentioned in the commentaries, which associates clear knowledge with the absence of delusion, asamoha, goes beyond the context of body contemplation. To have a clear understanding of the true nature of reality is a task of clearly knowing sampajana in general, a quality that, according to the definition, needs to be developed with all the satipatthana contemplations. The commentarial presentation of the four aspects inherent in clear knowledge can be seen to follow a progressive sequence, with clearly knowing in regard to purpose, that's the first one, one's progress to awakening, establishing the background for the for corresponding suitable conduct, that's sapaya, the second one, which in turn facilitates sense restraint and one's meditative development, which is uh, the, um, the, the third one, which is gochara, Gochara Sampajana, um, and one's meditative development, which then enables insight into the true nature of reality to arise, which is the you know the fourth one, Asamoha. In this way, the Satipatthana practice of developing clear knowledge in regard to activities combines purposeful and dignified conduct with sense restraint in order to build up a foundation for the arising of insight. In fact, both proper conduct and sense restraint overlap to some degree, since several aspects of a monk's or nun's code of conduct are intended to facilitate sense restraint. While on the other hand, one's bodily activities will become more graceful and dignified if a certain degree of mental equilibrium through the absence of sensual distractions has been established. Compared to the contemplation of the four postures, clear knowledge, satisampajanya, in regard to activities, introduces an additional element, since the former consists only in bare awareness of whatever posture or movement occurred naturally, while the latter includes purposely adopting a restrained and dignified behavior. So that's uh, the last little synopsis of saying, you know, firstly, uh, just being aware of the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, uh, is uh, the, the first of the Satipatthana's um, it's just a bare awareness of whatever the posture is, and this is including uh, that um, clear knowledge, which uh, also leads to this quality of uh, dignity and um, restraint uh, in respect to those um, those aspects. Now, I would also like to uh, add in uh, in terms of of um, the uh, mindfulness of activities then that uh, just to uh, underscore the whole realm of work and and practice and how it's it's very very common to think oh i'm on retreat i'm, I'm really happy i'm going to go on a retreat and uh, uh, i'm going to go to amaravati for the winter retreat to practice so i'm going to go to uh, to burma to practice or i'm going to uh, go to sri lanka or thailand to practice and that uh, the um uh, the mode of uh, or the the sort of framework of intention. Um, uh, when we do that, it sets up. If that's practice, when I'm sitting in the meditation hall or walking up and down in a in a silent place on a walking path, 
if that's practice, then that means everything else that is not that is not practice. So we disempower our, ourselves or, or devalue the the rest of our life when we're not in retreat or not uh, following that kind of activity. And uh, and so, uh, as Ajahn Chah would often point out, you can suffer in every posture, but you can awaken in every posture. The, the Dhamma is no less real. You know, the ultimate reality of things is no less real because we happen to be sitting in the, the sala having a Dhamma reading rather than sitting in the temple you know, you know, watching our breath or, or uh, observing the passing of, of uh, thoughts and feelings and, and moods and such like. <clears throat> so in that respect, um, there is a story often uh, uh, that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often tell about when uh, Ajahn Chah had been given this, this property um, to, to build a monastery, a, a little hill. In northeast Thailand, uh, is very very flat, for the most part, particularly Ubon province. Um, but there are a few little hilly areas, and one of them is uh, an area called uh, Tumsang Pet, uh, outside of uh, a small town of Amnachira, north of, of Ubon, and uh, where our main monastery is. So uh, uh, this uh, local, um, uh, very wealthy woman uh, who made a lot of money building the railways up into the northeast, and she was a supporter and friend of Ajahn Chah, and she said, if if you can find a way to, to make a road up to the top of the hill, then I'll offer you the, the whole hill and I'll, I'll build a monastery on top. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll pay for you to build a monastery if you can find a way up there. But it was very uh, rugged and, and rocky and um, uh, kind of uh, uh, precipitous territory. It was very convoluted and... and uh, uh, difficult so that uh, the general opinion was that there's no way you could get a road up to the top because the, the hill is so sort of craggy and and uh, awkwardly constructed but uh, once this lady Kun Ying Dun had made this offer then uh, Lumpur Chah thought okay well they say it's impossible to find a way to get a road up there let's let's go take a look so he took his his um, camping uh, gear his uh, mosquito net and his bowl and and went and camped out on the hill for a, a week and tromped back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, up and down, up and down. And uh, after a week, he realized, we can do it. There's a way you can, there's a way you can get a road up there. But, uh, it's, it's doable. And so after he demonstrated that to Kun Ying Dun, she said, okay, uh, well, if you, can, uh, if you build the road, uh, I'll build the monastery. So then uh, he uh, launched this road building program. And so a whole mass of the and the monks and novices moved out of, of the main monastery, Wat Bapong, and went up to this hill to, to build this road up to the, the top. And uh, so uh, Lumpur Sameda was a young monk at this time, and so he was um, uh, one of the members of the community, so he went along. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, it was quite common to be doing lots of physical work around the monastery, you know, uh, construction, or certainly sweeping leaves and hauling water and such like every day. So... It was not um, uh, unusual to, to have physical work, but it was usually a limited period of the day. But this road-building program was, was sort of about 12 hours of breaking rocks and pushing barrows and carrying uh, uh, carrying building materials every day. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the young Ajahn Sumedha joined in with this, and uh, after three or four days of, of sweating out in the sun and getting totally covered in dust and breaking rocks and, and uh, his mind going on and on and on he, he went to Ajahn Chah and said uh, 
Oh, Lumpur, Lumpur, you know, with, with, um, you know, I understand that we we need to build this road and that this is uh, that uh, you have this project to build this branch monastery up on top of the hill, but uh, all this this work is really interfering with my practice, and you know, my mind is really getting scattered. So, would it be okay if I just uh, meditate uh, while the um, well, uh, you know, while well, this work is going on, I'll, I'll stay here at Tamsang Pet with the rest of the Sangha, but, you know, would that be okay? And, and to his surprise, Lumpo she said, yeah, fine, 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 okay, so made it's, you just, yeah, you know, you want to practice so that uh, we'll, we'll carry on building the road, but uh, I think I should let the Sangha know, because otherwise people might get upset. And so, uh, and Lumpo Cha was a great actor, and, um, and so the young uh, Ajahn Sumedha didn't realize what was coming at all. And so that 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 uh, that that evening after they'd finished all of their their road work, then uh, Lumpur Cha uh, sort of gathered everyone together while they were sitting down having having a a, a, a cup of tea, um, and uh, and said, that, "So I want to make an announcement to the Sangha. So Tan Sumato, uh, he's a very serious practitioner, and uh, he's finding that all of the building work and." Breaking rocks and uh, and you know, carrying stone uh, across the, the hill and, and, uh, and that is, this is really interfering with his meditation. So I've given him permission to carry on with his practice, and so none of you are to complain or get upset or criticize him. He's got my permission to to do um, uh, to sit and, and practice sitting and walking meditation while the rest of us build the road. So I just want to make sure everyone understands you ha- he has my uh, full support for this. Because uh, you know, he's he's a very uh, sincere practitioner, so is that okay with everyone? Of course, what, is, uh, what they were feeling was probably something different, but he really kind of worked it to the to the hilt, <laughs> so, and so uh, um, it was uh, about two or three days. I just made a sitting there and can hear all the sounds of the rocks being broken and people talking and he's like. Desperately trying to sit under his mosquito net and concentrate, walking up and down, saying, "I've got to meditate. I've got to meditate. I've got to practice. I'm practicing. I'm practicing. I'm practicing. I'm practicing." And uh, after about three days, I'll oh, forget it. <laughs> He's just—he got what he wanted, but uh, it, it wasn't what he wanted once he got it. <laughs> that uh, he had um, uh, sort of had that idea that you know that carrying rocks and uh, and. Uh, and working with everyone is not the practice, and the, the formal meditation was, and so that um, uh, Ajahn Chah kind of, uh, also trusted that uh, well, uh, give him what he's asking for and let him see what he does with it. And so then uh, he, uh, uh, having had that experience, if he said no, no, Samedo, this is practice too. You got to carry on. He would have just probably just obeyed, but resented. But then having um, being given uh, that space and realizing that uh, yeah he got what he wanted, but also the fact that he was living in community and everyone else was doing that, and he had this view that this isn't the real you know, making the road isn't the real practice. But then uh, what I'm doing is the real practice, and saying well, well how come the teacher is happy building the road, and he's not only he's pushing barrows and carrying rocks, and he's working just as hard as everyone else. And when everyone else stops to take a rest, and he's talking to people and and, uh, and giving advice to all the you know local visitors and officials and villagers, and uh, so he's getting far less rest than the, than, than everybody. So, but he's not complaining, <laughs> and uh, and he's the one whose example I'm supposed to be following. Hmm. <laughs> so then he he uh, 
uh, cashed in his um, views and opinions after a few days and then joined in with uh, the road building and he said, and then he had a great time, even though it was getting hot and dusty and sweaty, that uh, he really uh, uh, enjoyed it. So that's a, a frequent, made, fre makes a frequent appearance in Lopo Somedo's Dhamma Talks. But I, I would underscore that, um, not that we have to be working to such extreme levels, but uh, I would encourage us not to make that division of um, now I'm practicing. I mean, like to, from tomorrow, tomorrow I have a, my solo retreat time beginning, so I don't, I'm not thinking, okay, from t uh, tomorrow afternoon, then I can really practice. And now I have to deal with all these people. To <laughs> so, spend all this time with this and uh, uh, and uh, wouldn't it be nice if this was over and then I can go and practice if I think that then right there I'm suffering but if you recognize well this is informal uh, this is informal practice and then sitting with your eyes closed in the temple that's formal practice but it's still it's still practice the, the, the ultimate reality of things how could it be interrupted by whether there's people around or there's not people around whether it's a, a, a breath arising and passing away or whether it's a crowd of people arising and passing away what's the difference? You know, the the mind which which knows that is the same, and the, it's all just patterns of nature coming together and and dissolving. So, how could that be? How could the ultimate reality of things not be exactly the same? Whether there's uh, uh, noise or silence, or people or not people, or like uh, this afternoon sitting in the temple, the wind blasting away and roaring, and that uh, you can hear a lot of sound and uh, great turbulence and busyness. But yet, the mind which knows it is perfectly silent. Perfectly, in all that movement, there's, there's a perfect stillness. So, I encourage, I uh, sincerely encourage this, uh, setting the mind up in this way to see this formal practice, informal practice, and that they are, they are of equal value. They have different results, different flavors. Uh, you know, sweet is not the same as salty. They're, they have different flavors, but uh, they are uh, ultimately of equal value. So I'll leave things there for this evening, and that's, this is the last of the readings for the next few weeks, so these will resume in early March again. Mm -hmm.